listening to Flex Coaches Inside the Game. We're talking with sportscaster Bob Costas. Now let's talk about you anchored a lot of studio shows mm -hmm. and you did a great job with that. How different is that for you than just calling a game? I mean, you're, you're playing traffic cop. You have a lot yeah. of moving parts to it. How difficult is that? And, and what are the differences that you see that you've had to learn to do? Well, you've got to learn the mechanics of it. Like you said, Chris, a lot of it is traffic copping. And somebody, here we are talking and it's open-ended. And somebody says, give me 30 seconds in your ear. You, you better give them 29.5 and not 30.5. Miss <laughs> 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 the commercial roll or whatever it is. So you, yes. get, you learn that little facility. Uh, Mike Tarico is very good at it. Bryant Gumbel, who preceded me, was very, very good at it. Brent Musburger, in his own way, was good at it. You have to have that that traffic topic. Um, and while that doesn't have a poetic aspect to it, it is essential if you're going to do the job. It isn't so much the insight within that. If you can't handle that part, no matter what else you might bring to it, it, does, it doesn't matter. So early on, I didn't have much experience with it, but I picked up on it pretty quickly. And what you want ultimately is for the audience not to care about the mechanics of it, for it to all seem comfortable. And so you're at ease. So even as you're listening to what the producer is saying in your ear, or you're checking notes, ideally you want to be spontaneous. So someone says something unexpected, you want to be quick enough to have a response or to laugh or to acknowledge it. Um, because the audience wants to feel as if they're eavesdropping on a conversation. So there's multiple aspects to it. Now, that's just if you're doing the halftime show in football or basketball. Uh, of course, with the NBA on NBC, hosting that had a different element to it because we did these dramatic openings, especially for the games late in the playoffs, dramatic openings that I wrote and, and delivered. And they yes. did such a great job producing it. So it's your job then to set the scene. And then they would have me do a mini essay that that kind of framed the game that was upcoming. So that was beyond nuts and bolts. And when you're hosting the Olympics, that has a whole, next. a whole different texture to it. You've got to know the history of the Olympics, the history of the host nation, the history of the host city. You've you got to have a broader view than just here. We're going to the Alpine skiing. When we come back, we're going to the hockey. How difficult is it to, is to host an Olympics? You've, you've done it so many times, but it's very difficult because you got to learn all these names. you got to learn all about the different things for the athlete. How many months out before you get to a Games have you been preparing with the research department and with the producers for this? Because it's, it looks flawless, but people don't realize there's a lot of steps in the process to get there because an athlete can bow out, not make a team. There's a surprise athlete who comes along makes the team and, 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 and all those different variables that come in on you. I learned, I did a dozen Olympics in total by the third or fourth one. I had learned that it was almost as important to know what you didn't need to know as to know what you did need to know. The host of the Olympics should be a good generalist, but it's the people at the venues who do the deep dives into all the particulars. And early on, I'm trying to memorize platform divers from Peru whose names would never be mentioned in prime time under any circumstance. Uh, the researchers are so good, and they put out such voluminous material about every sport and about every participant. But you need to know, if you're in my position or now Mike Tarico's position, what are the broad themes? What, who are the two dozen or so athletes likely to be featured in prime time? 
And then you have to have this knack. And it's just a knack. It's not a big deal, but you need it. Where if something unexpected happens, the researchers are so good, they put it in front of you. You need to be able to digest this information quickly and then shape it into some kind of narrative. The best example I can give you of that is in 2000 in Sydney, Rulon Gardner, uh, a kid from Wyoming, big galoot from Wyoming, somehow wins uh, the, the wrestling gold medal over Alexander Karelin, um, who was this mythic figure uh, from the Soviet Union, Russia by then, who trained literally carrying giant logs on his shoulders and trudging through like knee deep snow in Siberia. And not only would he defeat his opponents, they were afraid of him because they picked, he picked them up and, and you'd see the look of fear on their face because this is the WWE. He could drop yeah, them. Is. Yeah, this is, I mean, he was a fearsome figure and we had done features about him because he'd won multiple world championships and Olympic medals. So I knew all about Corellan, but I didn't know anything about Rulon Gardner because no one expected him to do a thing. And somehow he defeated Corellan. And now we've got, I don't know, three minutes before I'm going to come on the air. And they, they hand me what the, the sheet on Rulon Gardner. And I'm trying to make some sense of this and place it in some kind of context. Is this as big an upset as the Jets beating the Colts in Super Bowl three, <laughs> which, which the announcers at the scene claimed it was. And I'm like pumping the brakes on that because with all due respect to both Corellan and Gardner, Americans don't care about this as much no, as they, they don't. Yeah. About the Super Bowl. This is the young Cassius Clay beating Sonny Liston, but it's something. So you, you have to have some sense of proportion and the, the knack to take that information and, and fit it in. But if, if I tried to memorize, or if Mike Tirico tried to memorize every Rulon Gardner or the equivalent, especially in a summer Olympics, where you got like 10,000 athletes in 200 nations, your head would explode. And 95% of what you learned would be useless anyway. What's something that the person at home that's watching doesn't know about that, that position you're doing that just would completely blow their mind? Well, that the host is the host of the Olympics. The host does not produce the Olympics. The number of times I decided, now let's leave Michael Phelps and go to the dream team or, or go to the gymnastics, or I let, I'll interview so-and-so right now. The number of times I decided that over a dozen Olympics is exactly zero. Zero. <laughs> zero. The, the Olympics are produced by an executive producer and his or her lieutenants. They make the decisions. I may have had some input, but I never had the final say. So the host gets perhaps too much of the credit. Like people say, oh, I saw a wonderful piece that Bob Costas did. Well, maybe Bob Costas narrated it. Maybe he <laughs> added something to it. But someone worked their ass off for weeks to produce yes. that piece. They deserve more of the credit. At the same time, the host gets a lot of the blame. Oh, I'm so sick of Bob Costas focusing only on the volleyball when I want to see, you know, race walk. Bob Costas never decided that. Mike Tirico ain't deciding that. You know, we're, we're playing the hand we're, we're dealt as, as best we can. So there you go. No, notable calls in your career. What's one call that you will always love that you had done that maybe people don't know you for, but it's your favorite call? 
the so-called Sandberg game in 1984 at Wrigley Field on the old Saturday afternoon baseball game of the week when the game of the week meant something different, when baseball fans really were locked into that. It was such an epic game in a, in a perfect setting, uh, and it's the signature game of Sandberg's career, and I still hear about it, including from Sandberg himself. Um, I like the call of the end of the Yankee sweep in 99 and of, of Michael Jordan's shot that won the championship in, in 98. There are a number of baseball calls that uh, when I've seen the games played back on, on the baseball network and someone will always they'll call me, Hey, you're on the baseball network. Al Michaels <laughs> called me once and he said, I'm on three networks at once. This was, this was before vaccines. There's no one's playing anything. He's on the NBA network, the NFL network and the MLB network simultaneously. You know, there have been a few they, David justice hit a home run in uh, game six in 2000 at Yankee stadium that finished the Mariners and sent the Yankees to the world series. Tony Pena hit an extra inning home run in 95 for Cleveland against the Red Sox in the division series. And I'm doing it with Bob Euchre. And that was pretty good. Uh, Joe, Uke and I were pretty much on top of uh, the Jeffrey Mayer play when Derek Jeter hit the fly ball to right field and the kid reached over on this yes, before, I actually, replay. I have a sidebar. I went to high school with his sister. Is that right? Yeah. And she told me it, it almost ruined their lives. The Tell family. Me. Tell yeah, me. Yeah. It, um, it's her stepbrother and uh, his sister Jody went to high school with me. She was two years behind me at Riverdale mm -hmm. and people were seeking her out, her parents out, him out everywhere because they wanted him to sign their ticket from that game or they wanted him to sign the program from that game. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'd be, you know, she said, I'd be walking down the street in New York city. Somebody would hear my last name and say, Oh, is your brother? So-and-so. And she kind of roll her eyes and the person would come back and say, could you give this to your brother to sign this? Because I was at that game. And <laughs> it, it was, it was, she said it was, and people were knocking on the door on the house, wanting him to sign stuff. And he was a kid. Yikes. And she said it was a very, very, you know, tenuous thing. And now it's kind of died down. She lives in Florida, but yeah, it was, she said it almost ruined their family because, wow. you know, the, you, know, you know, the collection world, it's crazy. These people yeah. want everything signed and they felt that he should sign this. And, you know, he was very standoffish. He's 12 years old. And she said, you know, it was just, it was very bizarre, you know, and, and I, I'll never forget when she told me, I saw her at one of the reunions and she said to me, she goes, yeah, it almost ruined our family because they were coming wow. after us. And we couldn't believe signed this. I bought People went and bought baseballs from that world series, wanting him to sign it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And the kid's 12. And then he went off to college and then, you know, the, the Yankees tried to do whatever, but you know, I, and then I, it was all yeah, over. Played, he was a pretty decent baseball player himself and played college baseball, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was up in Connecticut. I forget what school, but yeah. he played up there for a little bit. He was it's quite interesting. And it was, you know, here in River Edge and Oradell, it became like a little folklore in Old Japan that, you know, Jeffrey Mayer is here. Or, you know, <laughs> think, think about this. My math is correct. I think in 96, he was 12 years old. Yes. So, so you're talking about a 38 year old man now. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. You know, he'll always be tied to that. You know, yeah. that's, that's kind of, it's kind of a strange thing. Um, what's one call in sports that you've heard that you'd like a shot at that somebody else did? Is there one mm -hmm. call you would just like a shot at because it was so amazing to you? Well, almost by definition, if it was that amazing, I couldn't and no one else could have done better. Yeah. You 
Sandy Koufax's perfect game, the ninth inning of his perfect game in 1965. Game's not on television. Vin Scully, working alone, is doing it on radio. If you had a month to write every word of that down to the comma, you couldn't improve on what Vin Scully did in the moment extemporaneously. Now, you knew every time Koufax took the mound, he pitched three previous no-hitters. This was his fourth, and he capped it with the perfect game. You knew it was always a possibility, but you couldn't have anticipated all these circumstances. And Scully's combination of excitement and anticipation, but also control, this was a master at work. A lot of fans seem to think that the best calls are the most over-the-top calls. And maybe that has something to be said for it because the, the fan can feel the excitement. So for them, maybe the quality is measured in decibel levels. But Scully is so masterful with this. All the little details, the mm -hmm. pace, the pauses, uh, the, the punctuations that lead up to the final exclamation. It's just perfect. You can't improve upon that. Uh, Al Michaels was in a different situation in 1980 with the Miracle yes. on Ice because it's on television. So the simple, do you believe in miracles? Yes, is one of the most resonant calls in the history of sportscasting. And something that seems obvious, and Al and I talked about this on HBO only about a month ago, people take this for granted or don't even note it. This is one of the few times on network television. You're not a local announcer when you're doing network games. People are rooting for either team. They're betting on either team or they have mm -hmm. no particular interest. This is one of the few times in a major event where virtually 100% of your audience has the same rooting interest. They're all rooting for the American team, the scrappy underdogs against the Soviet machine. Plus, it's on home ice in Lake Placid. So you got all that going for you. But you also have to have an innate sense. You can't plan for it. An innate sense of what will fit in the moment. And you as a hockey guy can picture this in your mind's eye. The puck is cleared to center ice with like four or five seconds to go. So there's no chance that the Soviets nope. can regroup and get a decent shot on goal. Because the last thing you want to do is say something and then oh, all of a sudden the whole narrative changes. But the puck is out at center ice, but the game's not over yet. This gives him a, a moment, and you have to just sense this, gives him the time he needs to say, you got five seconds. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And then as the American players thrust their sticks in the air, it's almost a metaphorical exclamation point after the yes. Now, that is much less detailed and much shorter than Scully's call of Koufax's perfect game, the whole ninth inning. But in its own way, it's just as perfect. And what was amazing about that game was that was on a tape delay. Yes. And people, a lot of people don't realize that wasn't live because I yep. remember Jim McKay coming on that night and saying, if you don't want to know who won this game, turn the channel right now. and I'm going to tell everybody who won. And, you know, he, he told me one time they had to go and call a game after that with Ken Dryden. Yep. And he, he was said it was such a letdown emotionally because it was it was unbelievable. And it wasn't even the gold medal game. They still have to beat. Phil no, it wasn't. That's what pe to, people always to, think to, that's the gold medal game. It's not. You know, yeah. and I tell that to people like, you know, years later when I was coaching, Herb Brooks was doing a, a um, an event with the Devils, and he was coaching the Devils. And he did this whole USA hockey thing over a weekend. And somebody said, so what was it like when you when you won the Soviet game and won the gold medal? And he goes, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I got to tell you, we had to come back and play Finland, and we were down 2-0, and we won 4-2 on that Sunday. 
you know, and Mike Ruzioni told me at the Olympics in 92, he said, Brooks just walked into the locker room before the game. And he goes, if you lose this game, you take it to your graves. And he turned around, he's open the door and he goes, you're bleeping graves. And that was right. all he said. And they knew that guys, we can't lose this game. So yeah, Kurt Russell did a great job of capturing him, not just the look uh, of the fashions of the time, but just his whole <laughs> demeanor, his whole body yeah, language. As, as, as Danny Brooks said to me one time, he goes, I saw the pictures of your father and my father when they were, you know, in that era and the, you know, bell-bottom pants with the plaid jackets and the, and the hush puppies. He goes, my father had that all over the house. And the lapels on the shoulder. And the best is that one powder blue jacket that Herb wore. And they, his wife still has that from the game. I was wow. just like, oh, my God. Should, this is should, be in, should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But, you know, the yeah. point you made earlier about it being on tape delay shows you how the world has changed. Now people yes. don't, don't just expect they get annoyed if they don't have something at 3 o'clock in the morning if it's playing out on the other side of the world. I want this live. I want it right now. I want all the details. That's, what, that's a difficult thing for NBC. You know, these Olympics in China present all kinds yes. of even in a normal Olympic situation, the world has changed so much that you have to figure out a way on some platform to give all the really avid people what they want right now, but still craft something in prime time, which is still the bulk of the viewership that they'll be satisfied with. But I remember watching that game in St. Louis uh, and no one was upset that it wasn't live. Either they no. didn't know or they didn't care. You know? No, no, so, but, but it was amazing. Jimmy Craig told me one time, he said, he goes, what's really remarkable about that game is he said, nobody outside of Lake Placid when we won knew it was in the afternoon. Yep. It wasn't on television anywhere. It was, it was whatever. And, and Rune Arledge went to the Russian hockey federation and was willing to give them $500,000. And they told him yet because it was going to screw up their broadcast back in Russia and the Soviet union. And they wanted to play the game. They wanted to move it live to eight o'clock. And the Russian Federation said, no, we're not doing it. We're playing the game or whatever. And that's it. Oh, wow. And Yeah. And it was really, there were all these, like Joe Assetti was a director at the Olympics. That. Yeah. There was all these stories that came out because Herb told the guys, either we're playing at one o'clock or we're playing at eight o'clock. I don't know yet. The night before the game. I'm Chris Riley. You're listening to Inside the Game brought to you by Flex Coach. Stay tuned for more segments here with Bob Costa. 